We come now to our sermon passage, and we're in Exodus 13. We're uh, in the last weeks of our first uh, um, sermon series here in Exodus. In the summertime, we're going to take a break into the Psalms. Um, but this morning, we'll be looking at Exodus 13, 1 through 16. And uh, to help get us an idea of exactly where this is, what's going on is God has freed his people from Egyptian slavery. They are coming out of Egypt. And God's giving them their last instructions as they're leaving. And so he's giving them uh, basic instructions about what it means for them to leave slavery and to begin to walk into a future where their identity is not defined by bondage. And what that means. So Exodus 13 verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. The beautiful and true. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belonged to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe the ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord had did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand, and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. That the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it declares to us the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency we have in him. So I pray here in this uh, piece of scripture written 1400 years before the time of Jesus. That you would use it as you always have. To show yourself to us, that we would catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and through that, a picture of who we are in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm not going to dig into the details of the unleavened uh, bread and the yeast. We've talked about that a number of times over the last few weeks, but just uh, saying that ahead of time. Um, now, I don't know if you collect anything. Um, most people do. They collect you know, like Beanie Babies or something like that. They collect things. One thing I used to collect, and I guess I still do, is comic books. And, and one thing that's pretty common in everything that we tend to collect, what's the most valuable? It tends to be the first, right? The very first of a, of a thing. The first edition is the most valuable. Um, the original 
not copies the original. So comic books. The most valuable comic book in the world is Action Comics number one. It came out in November 1938 and is the first appearance of Superman. Action Comics number one. And when it came out, it was 10 cents. Easy 10 cents. And uh, experts think now that there's less than 100 actually still out there that you can pick up where the paper hasn't uh, collapsed. Well, a few years ago, someone was digging through their attic. And there at the bottom of the stack of magazines, they found an Action Comics number one in mint condition. Nobody had touched it. And so they were obviously very excited. They took it to an auction house who decided to auction it off. And you know what it went for? $3.2 million. A 10-cent comic book went for $3.2 million in a world like ours. Isn't that that's bonkers? Now, here's the, here's the wilder thing about this and the idea that the first is the most valuable. I can go on Google right now. I can get my phone, Google Action Comics number one. I can look at every panel of that comic book. I can read the entire thing. I can see every picture that was drawn. I can read the entire story. But the valuable thing isn't the story, right? It's not even the looking at the pictures. It's that it's the first thing. That's what made it the treasure while somebody paid $3.2 million to buy it. So I want you to imagine that that was me. I, I don't have $3.2 million, and if I did, I wouldn't spend it on a comic book. But let's imagine that I did. Um, imagine I won the auction. And of course, the journalists are going to come up and say, what are you going to do with it? You're going to put it in a, you're going to loan it to a museum. Are you, you going to keep it on your wall? Well, imagine I took that $3.2 million comic book outside, and I burned it. And I burned it for everybody to see. Now, why would I do that? I might be making a statement about how preposterous it is that a comic book is worth $3.2 million in a world uh, full of you know, poverty and, 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 and things. I might be making some kind of statement against materialism or low culture entertainment. I don't think comic books are low culture entertainment. But, um, or I might be making a statement of devotion. It might be like a kind of wild thing that I'm doing to show people that something matters more to me than a comic book or to then $3.2 million. I bring that up because the Israelites that are being addressed in Exodus 13, they live in a world kind of similar to ours, but only heightened. In the ancient world, the first of something was the most important. Now, they didn't have comic books, but the first of a, a, a herd, the firstborn male of a new you, uh, that was inherently more special. It was seen as more holy more valuable. That's what the firstborn was in the ancient world. And so what God is doing here, His people are leaving Egyptian slavery and He gives them a ritual, in a sense, that addresses that mindset specifically. One that serves as a reminder to His people of what their true treasure is. And that points forward to what He's going to later on do through Jesus, His firstborn son, His only begotten son. So let's jump into that. I've got a couple of different sections to help us get our mind around this passage. And the first is this. Our worth is not in what we own. Our worth is not in what we own. Or my worth is not in what I own. In fact, let's say that. Let's say that together. My worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in what I own. Maybe I should get that tattooed. As we've said, Exodus is the story of God bringing his people out of Egyptian bondage. Calls it the house of bondage. 
in this, this, this uh, passage. House of bondage was this picture. Uh, the Egyptians would take their slaves and they put their slave masters over them and they would build like a walled city around them where they worked. It was kind of like a concentration camp. That was the house of bondage that would have been in their minds when it said that. God's bringing them out of that to what? To live with Him from one house to another. And now that they've been freed from slavery, they're looking to the future. They're staring at a, a new future that they probably couldn't have imagined. And they're freed in their imaginations to think of a different world that their ancestors couldn't have imagined. And what comes next is a bunch of things. And that's where Exodus goes next. They've been freed. And what does God do? He gathers them as a nation. In fact, one of the ways Scripture speaks about the Exodus is kind of like a birth. It speaks of Israel being God's firstborn son. And the Exodus is this almost... Uh, uh, cataclysmic birthing of them as a nation. And so they're gathered to him at, uh, at Mount Sinai. He meets with them in Exodus 19 and 20 and he gives them his instruction, his law, to help guide them in their lives into human flourishing and glory of God. He gives them rituals to do. And all the rituals of the sacrificial system and the tabernacle, these were things that like played on their imaginations and trained them to think our God is not like the Egyptian gods. He's fundamentally different. Our God dwells with us. And as it's mentioned in this passage in verse 5, He's also going to give them something. He's going to give them a promised land. A place where they could thrive. And for God's perspective, it was kind of, the promised land was kind of like His new headquarters for His ongoing purposes of bringing grace into our world. We have to remember, when we come into Exodus, this is the next stage of God's plan to defeat the power of sin. And to bring grace to his people. So the next stage is he's setting up a headquarters that's going to be in modern day Middle East for the next stage of his plan. So all these are incredible blessings. The instructions of God. These rituals that they have. The promised land. But I think God knew that the Israelites' hearts would do what our hearts tend to do with good things. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate we take the blessings and the good things that are in our lives and we put too much weight on them. We attach our value to them. As I said, our worth is not in what we own. We begin to attach value to the things we have. We start to think and to act as if our worth is in what we've collected to ourselves. For the Israelites, that would have been herds, livestock. It would have been land. It would have been sons and family. My value is more than what I have. Now we know from Israelite history, if you keep reading in the Old Testament, this was something that was an ever-present danger. It kept coming up over and over again. This idea to detach the gift from the giver. To put more worth in the things we have instead of God who has given these good things. And again, to make good things ultimate things. And so what this ritual is, here in Exodus 13, as strange as it sounds to us, it's a ritual action to remind his people that their worth is not in what they own. Their worth is not in what they own. It reminds them. And it does it by this, by taking the firstborn and dedicating it to God. Now our passage mentions human sons and it mentions uh, animals. But later on when they come into the promised land, God actually expands this to the first fruits of harvest. 
you know, when they're coming to the promised land and now they have land and they farm this land, well, that becomes part of this too. They dedicate the first fruits of that harvest to God. And it's a reminder over and over again, my value is not in the thing I have. My worth is not in what I own. Now, as I said earlier, they lived in a world where the first of a thing was inherently holy or special. The firstborn sons, for instance, firstborn sons, they were primary inheritors of their parents' estate. And they carried the hopes and the dreams and the responsibilities of family. But a family's worth was not in their firstborn son. He can't bear that weight and he shouldn't have to. So right here, this strange ritual, it's a reminder that their worth is not in what they own and their worth is not built on the back of their children. The firstborn son belongs to who? To God. And the parents can't treat him the way they want to. They can't just make it up. So this ritual, as odd as it seems to us, again, it's a reminder they're not sustained by their stuff. Their worth is not neither is ours. But if our worth isn't in what we own, what is it? What is it? Well that leads me to our second section. Our treasure is God. My treasure is God. In fact, let's say that together. My treasure is God. My treasure is God. So the firstborn here, they're consecrated. They're set aside to God as a sign to the people that their treasure is Him and not their stuff. It's a reminder to them that He will care for them. And that their comfort is in Him and all things through Him. God and all things in God. Because think about this. This ritual, from a purely economic viewpoint, is wasteful. It costs a lot. It does. It costs a lot. To sacrifice the firstborn male of a flock, it means losing money-making and life-sustaining sheep. You've got to always factor it in. It's incredibly wasteful from an economic standpoint. It makes no sense. There's a lot of waste here. Now, I heard a pastor a few years ago. She was talking about her, her young son at church. And the moment, I think he was six, and, six or seven, when he discovered that the offering that was taken up, they would pass the plate around, put money in the plate. And how upset the son was to find out that after the service, that they used that money to pay bills. Or they used that money to, uh, to, to pay salaries. The kid had thought they collected all the money and after the service they burned it. He had read about burnt offerings in the Old Testament. And he had read Paul talking about our, our, our giving as a fragrant offering to the Lord. And he had thought that what they did as a sign of their devotion to God and their love for God was that they took this money up and to show that it didn't have power over them, they burned it. Now, we laugh at that. We laugh at that. But I actually think that his young heart was latching onto something important. I think his young mind had found an insight that we see in this passage. Because imagine, you're an ancient Israelite. And what do you have to do with the firstborn? You have to sacrifice. And it's a reminder, always. It's really hard to make an idol after, so, after something you have to give up. It was built in their worship. I don't belong to these things. My worth is not in what I own. My treasure is God. Now, this isn't God being cruel. 
This isn't God trying to handicap his people from an economic perspective. Like they're trying to build up their lives and God's just knocking them in the knees over and over again. Sacrifice the firstborn. Sacrifice the firstborn. No, this isn't God being cruel because God knows. God knows that all these good things are not ultimate things. And God knows that his people, like all of us with our hearts in this broken world, are so prone to place our affections on things that can't bear the way, to chase after things that can ultimately not satisfy, and that their stuff could never bear the weight of their heart's affections. They needed the reminder that their worth is not in what they own. Their treasure is God. He is our strength. He is our sustenance. He is our sufficiency. We are who He says we are, and He'll provide for us. To do this ritual is an incredible act of faith because it's banking on the idea that if I give this up, I'm not at a loss. If I give this up, God, God holds all that is given to Him and He loses none of it. And I don't have to worry. Yeah, I'm putting a torch to the offering money and watching it burn. But the bills are still going to get paid. We're still going to be alright. He will guide us home and His goodness and mercy will chase after us all the days of our lives. This ritual wasn't, it was telling them this, but notice it wasn't just something designed to be said and to be thought about. The ritual was an action that they were to take. In fact, it speaks about it a couple of times as a, something placed on their forehead or between their eyes and on their right hand. It was going to be something that was embedded in their lives to this ritual and a reminder. I think we see that when it speaks about, because um, it makes a provision for the future. This isn't just something that happened as they were leaving Egypt, because it speaks about in verse 8, it, it pictures a child that's not yet born asking their parents, what is going on here? Why are we doing this? The parents will explain. They continue to do this. Why? I do this because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This is utterly remarkable because that present tense it wasn't just used for one generation. As the, as the Israelite people went on, they didn't say this is what the Lord did for our ancestors when they came out of Egypt. It was this is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It was bringing that action of God and freeing His people into the present tense. It was never just a past tense thing. And I think the reason for that is that it's not just carrying on this idea that God is our treasure. It's carrying on a promise. It's a promise that God didn't just act in the past once in bringing out of Egypt. It brought it into the present tense to remind them that God wasn't done yet. We spoke about it. He was setting them up in the promised land as a headquarters for His promise to continue to come and bringing this to the present tense as they did this ritual time and time again was a reminder God is still at work. And it pointed specifically, and we have the better light of knowing this because we live on the other side of Jesus. It pointed to Him. This ritual was like a torch that they carried through the generations in the midst of the darkness of their world to remind them God's not finished yet. He's still at work. And how do we see that? Well, that brings me to my third section. We've said our worth is not in what we own. Our treasure is God. Well, here's the incredible truth. Here's the best news this morning. We are His treasure. 
We are His treasure. In fact, let's say that together. I am God's treasure. I am God's treasure. I am God's treasure. I love the movie The Prestige. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about magicians. It's really great. I've seen it a bunch of times. And I won't spoil it. I won't tell you everything that goes on. There's lots of twists and turns. But in one scene, this one magician has gone to the inventor, Nikola Tesla, who's an actual real guy. And he asked him to build him a machine to do a trick that no one had ever been able to do before. I'm really trying not to spoil it, so if <laughs> you haven't seen The Prestige. A trick no one had been able to do before. And Tesla looks at him and he says this, What you want is not impossible, but it is expensive. What you want is not impossible, but it is expensive. This ritual here is a reminder of that. Here's what I mean. As I've said, God was at work. He's bringing these people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And this, this next stage and him keeping that promise that he made to Abraham. That in the face of sin, God was going to work through Abraham's family to bless every nation on earth. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. But God's mercy coming into our world, it, it can't come easily. Our world's an absolute mess. An absolute mess. It's broken. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Human beings were created in the image and likeness of God. And we are designed to reflect His beauty and glory. But what is our world filled with? It's filled with violence and selfishness and sin. Human history is a theater of sin. And God's holy. And He's just. He does what is right. He does justice. And God intends to pry this world back from the futility of sin to win it back to himself. And that's not impossible. That's what God wants. That's not impossible. But like the magician was told by Tesla, it is expensive. For God to bring his grace into our world, a cost has to be paid. But who can pay? Who will pay? This passage seems to point not just to a reminder that their worth is not in what they own, that their treasure is God, but also to the idea that a cost must be paid that they can't foot the bill for. Think about it. This ritual was performed over and over again for 1,400 years. But what was the firstborn son of the Israelites redeemed with? A lamb? A lamb? The firstborn son was being symbolically one to God, redeemed to him by a sacrifice of, frankly, a measly animal. That's less an actual payment, more like an IOU. <laughs> the, the, the ritual was always that I'll have to pay later. This ritual, like all the Old Testament sacrifices, it actually points in a way to the insufficiency of any gift we could give. Insufficiency of any gift we could give, any sacrifice we could and it pointed to this, a day when God would redeem His people by His Son. That God would bear the cost. This ritual served as a massive object lesson that what God wanted to redeem His people would be expensive, but it was a cost that He would bear. That He would carry it. That He would carry His people's sin. That He would pay the price. That He would bear the cost. And so God gives His only begotten Son who we read at the beginning in Colossians 1, the firstborn over all creation, the inheritor of all things. He's the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made. 
whose supremacy is over all things, who is worthy beyond the concept of being worthy, he who is beautiful and wonderful and glorious in every way, that is what God offered up to bring his grace to us. And in doing that, in doing that, God wins us to himself. He bears the cost, he bears the way, and he shows us not just that he is to be our ultimate treasure, but this, that we are his treasure. That we are his treasure. In fact, let's say it again. I am God's treasure. I am God's treasure. Never forget that. Your worth is not in what you own. Your treasure is God. And you are his treasure. You are his treasure. This morning, we don't need to offer some sacrifice that's not really sufficient. That's the reason we don't keep doing this. It all pointed to Jesus and it was fulfilled in him. God offered that sacrifice of Christ in our place that our confidence might not rest in the quality of the lamb we might bring up to the sacrificial table, but that our confidence might rest in him and him alone. And our invitation is to throw ourselves upon the sure and steady foundation of his love, to never try and stand on our own two feet again and never try and find our worth in the things that we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this glorious truth that we've seen here in Exodus 13. That our worth is not in what we own and what good news that is to us who don't have a lot. And what good news that is to us who do have a lot. Because we find quickly that it's never enough. We always want more and more and more. But the fact that our worth is not in it frees us, God. It frees us from that chain, those chains that wrap around our hearts. We thank you that you are our treasure because you can bear the weight of our worth. We can throw ourselves on you and know that we are caught. And we, what do we find there? Not just a sure foundation to stand on, but we found ourselves held and comforted by the Father because we are your treasure. So I pray that you imprint this on our hearts, remind us of it, and teach us to never go anywhere else but to stay on you. In Jesus' name.